you worry? Oh, how you weary from fearing you lost control. This was the one thing you didn't see coming, and no one would blame you. Though, if you cried in private, if you tried to hide it away, so no one knows. No one will see. First Timothy chapter four and look in verse 14. This is Paul speaking to Timothy and he says, do not neglect the gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. And then he says, watch your life and doctrine Closely. In King James, it says, take heed to thyself and the doctrine. In the REV, it says, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. It goes on, it says, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so we're going to talk a little bit today uh, about the importance of personal spiritual checkups that can't be underrated. For the minister especially, it's crucial. I think of this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson that says, The true preacher can be known by this, that he deals out to people his life, life passed through the fire of thought. So if the minister's life is corrupt, his message, of course, will be corrupt as well. So uh, as such, it's essential for the minister to examine his own life. Truly, it's it's essential for all of us. So today we're going to talk about the conscience and the importance of the conscience. So what is the conscience? The conscience is the internal or self-knowledge of judgment of right and wrong. It's the faculty, power, or principle within us which decides on the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of our own actions and affections and instantly approves or condemns them. Conscience is called by some writers the moral sense and considered as an original faculty of our nature. You don't have to turn there, but in John 8, 9, regarding those who wanted to stone that woman who was caught in adultery and to whom Jesus said, He among you who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, it says, Being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one. So these people left because their conscience had been convicted. The conscience manifests itself in the feeling of obligation we experience, which precedes, attends, and follows our actions. Conscience is, in the first sense, occupied in ascertaining our duties before we proceed to them, and afterwards in judging our actions once they've been performed. Does that make sense, everybody? So our conscience helps us decide the course of action that we're going to take, whether it's right or wrong, and then after we do take a course of action, whether we were right or wrong in performing it. Um, so I had had a, uh, a conversation with a co-worker of mine. Um, my wife got to hear the blow-by-blows of these conversations. This was a this was a very interesting person that I was friends with, and he was an atheist, uh, a devout atheist. And he and I used to have very lively, interesting conversations. Um, and you know they were they were free of animus. We never got into a fight. It was just it was enjoyable. Um, this one time, he made this statement. He claimed that Christians who instruct their children from the Bible are practicing a form of child abuse. So I said, okay, then what's the alternative? He said, teach your kids to follow their own consciences. Now, on the surface, that seems like a reasonable notion, right? Teach your kids to follow their consciences. I responded to him by saying, well, that presupposes that the conscience is always true and is never blemished or injured. But is that true? 
Is the conscience injured or injurable? And then I asked him, is stealing wrong? And he said, yes. And I said, if you steal, is it your conscience that tells you that you're wrong? And he said, yes. And I said, so if your conscience tells you that stealing is wrong, but you continue to steal, will that affect your conscience? In other words, if you knowingly violate your conscience, will it continue to speak to you as loudly as it previously did? And he admitted, no, it would not. And I asked him, so would you agree that the conscience can be altered? And he said, yes. And I said, so in fact, by teaching your kids that they are to follow their conscience, you would be teaching your kid to follow a moving target, right? And he acknowledged that. He was a pretty honest guy. The fact is, teaching your children to follow their conscience is only part of the story. Just like a watch or a barometer or an altimeter, the conscience needs to be calibrated. And uh, so bear with me on this analogy. (laughs) I ran this past my kids last night to make sure that this wasn't too complicated. But um, in engineering, we call this notion of calibration of equipment, we call it metrology. I used to work on a calibration program for the Navy, and the Navy has these labs, they're called metrology labs, and when, say, a submarine pulls into port, what they do is they take all the equipment off the uh, submarine, bring it to the calibration lab, the metrology lab, and they baseline all the equipment. They calibrate it. They calibrate all the equipment, and then they bring it back to the submarine, the submarine leaves. I was thinking also about your computer. Does everybody know your computer has a clock on it? It's called the system clock. And it's more than just a little, you know, clock in the bottom corner. That your computer has a clock. It's actually a crystal that has electricity that's put through it. And that crystal oscillates at a certain frequency. And so this oscillating crystal is your system clock. And all the routines... All the programs on your computer run based on this oscillating crystal, this clock, okay? But that clock will periodically drift away from its baseline. It'll get off track, and it has to be corrected. And so your computer, through the Internet, through, uh, through what we call a time server, will correct that clock, and it will be set back to baseline, okay? Everybody following me? Okay, so that's that's on your own computer. I even went to the website. There's a atomic clock that exists at the Naval Observatory in Washington D.C., and that is the time for the entire United States. So I went to that clock yesterday on the internet, and you can <clears throat> you can do this. You can look at the atomic clock, and it will give you a second by second accounting. And I looked at that clock. And I looked at the clock on my computer, and they were identical. Well, they weren't identical by accident. That automatically, my computer will start to drift, and then it will get a syncing signal sent from a time server that is has been synced by this atomic clock at the Naval Observatory. And my computer will be synced. And this happens many times a day. Isn't that cool? I just think that's amazing. Well, your conscience is the same way. Your conscience needs to be synced, and it's synced with the Word of God. It needs an external standard against which to baseline. The conscience is a trustworthy guide only when it is baseline to the true standard, which is God's Word. The conscience is instructable, and it should grow and mature. So as you are growing and and living life and maturing and growing older, your conscience should grow and mature as well. My conscience that I used to have as a teenager should not be the same conscience that I have as an adult, in other words. So your conscience needs to be educated by right instruction. It also needs to be maintained by right behavior. Remember what I said, you can injure your conscience. What we should not do is leave our conscience unattended. So we're going to look at the, at the 
conscience in the Bible today, um, Acts chapter 23. Turn to Acts chapter 23. So Paul is speaking to the Sanhedrin in uh, verse 1. It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. So there's the conscience, and then there is the conscience before God. Okay, as an image bearer of God, the natural man has a conscience. These aren't just brute beasts walking about. They are image bearers of God. They have a conscience. They can render judgments. Right. We all did. Sometimes they even have very well developed consciences and not infrequently more well developed than a lot of believers I've known. The unbeliever has the ability to rigorously discipline his conscience. There's this intellectual that I, I like, and I watch him in debates. His name is Sam Harris, and he has a very robust conscience. He's genuine, and he's sincere, and he's ruthless, ruthlessly honest in his conscience. But see, there's a difference between a Sam Harris, a natural man who has got a robust conscience, and a Christian, Right? While he's a devoted, Sam Harris is a devoted servant of his conscience, his conscience has no overseer but himself. The Christian, on the other hand, has a conscience that is enforced by the Holy Spirit and is consciously accountable to the Lord. It's a conscience before the Lord. So when the Christian is walking by the Spirit, he's accountable to the Lord both for his thought life and his conscience. So instead of saying, I have fulfilled my duty to my conscience, as Sam Harris might say, the Christian would say, as Paul did, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. Does that make sense to everybody? There's a definite distinction there. That we walk before God. God sees us. This is part of our conscience, that I can't fool God. There's an accountability there in the Christian conscience that is missing to the natural man. Go to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. It's Paul again, and he says, However, I admit, in verse 14, 24 verse 14, However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. How about that? Keeping your conscience clear before God and man. Christian duty requires the believer to keep a clear conscience before both God and man. Now, Throughout my years as a Christian, too often I've seen believers take the position, and wrongly so, that, well, hey, because I follow God, I'm off the hook and have no duty to man. And so he violates his vows and his commitments to others. He breaks faith and goes back on his word. And he expects the person to whom he did this to, to just get over it. (laughs) Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not walking by the Spirit. That's a character problem. Our word should be our bond, both with God and with man. We can't go back on promises. We can't go back on apologies and say, that's okay. It's wrong. Matthew 5.37 says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That's what it says. So the conscience is the inner witness for conduct. It confirms right behavior, thought, and rebukes and condemns wrong behavior and thought. Okay? Go to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. You know, one of the big thrills about being a parent is watching your children grow up and make moral decisions, isn't it? That they have their own conscience and they are applying that conscience to the world around them. And they're, and I hear them saying, this is right and this is wrong. And it's a thrill. It's a thrill to see this. So Romans chapter 2, look in verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, 
They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness, bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So, so you see that the conscience bears witness. It is your ever-present witness, okay? The essentials of the law are written in the heart, the conscience bearing witness to it. This is the basis of civil law in our country, in every country. All just civil law in its most fundamental form, is based on the universal law of the conscience. And we know that as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this is why John Adams said a free society requires a moral people, those who live by a developed conscience, and that it is wholly uh, inadequate to the government of any other. This is why heavy onerous laws are required for godless societies, lest a godless society would rip itself apart. The only way that you can have true freedom in a culture, in a society, is if the people have the inner guide of their conscience intact, that they are making righteous judgments. Go to Romans chapter 9, look in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So again, we see here the conscience bearing witness. The conscience is supported and reinforced in the Christian by the Holy Spirit. So when a person is living with a violated conscience, everything about that person becomes a lie. If you desire to be regarded as an honest person, you must develop and adhere to your own conscience. Romans 13. This is talking about the civil authorities. Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Go to verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. For a while there, when I was a new Christian, I didn't understand what this meant, that we do the right thing, not just because the law tells us to and we might get punished, but we do the right thing because of conscience. And see, this is the idea behind raising good children is that they're going to go out into society. They're not going to have mommy and daddy looking over their shoulders all the time, will they? They're going to have to make moral decisions on their own. They're going to, have to, they're going to be confronted with situations, and they're going to have to learn to say no. And, they, and we can't be standing over them prompting them. Well, you know, you're supposed to say no here. Now, of course, to the parent, it's terrifying. Will they make the right decision? I hope they do. But, you know, as I said, the thrill is, is that year by year you hear your children making these moral statements where you can hear in these statements that they're getting it. And it's just thrilling. It's thrilling to us. So your conscience helps you to do the right thing, not just to avoid punishment, but because it's the right thing to do. You know, it's always interesting to me that whenever you have civil unrest in a situation, whether it was Hurricane Katrina or this past summer with the Black Lives Matter protests, and what happens to people? They lose their minds and they start looting. They run into stores and they steal everything out of stores and they start burning buildings down. They would have never done that before, but now they do. Why? Because the law can't prosecute them. And so they do it. Well, what was in their hearts all along? Looting, mayhem, rioting, raping. That was already there. It was just unleashed. And sadly, for a large section of our culture, this is true. That the only reason people follow the law is because of the threat of punishment. And this is why I have a gun in my house, because if the law is not there, I've got to have a recourse. Does that make sense to everybody? I don't understand the argument that, you know, guns should be taken away from people. It doesn't make sense to me. 
We looked at Europe and what happened to Europe during World War II and afterwards, and it was murder on the wholesale. I just got finished reading a book called Savage Nation, and it dealt with Europe after World War II. And all these scores that were being settled between ethnic groups, long-standing uh, arguments between ethnic groups, and how people took their revenge because there was no law to keep them from doing it after the war. And how many people died as a result. It was something else. You know, our culture tells us that um, we can't draw conclusions of a people based on their behavior, groups of people. Well, I can and I will. I reserve that right. And every spiritual man and woman should reserve that right. That we can look at situations, we can look at groups of people and say, that's wrong, and that seems to happen every time the situation makes itself available. It's important for us to guard the conscience. I think about that verse that says in Proverbs 4, it says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Well, guard your conscience as well. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8. Look in verse 9. It says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And interesting. We're not just supposed to guard our own consciences. The love of Christ requires that we guard the consciences of those who are around us. Verse 10 here says, For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in a idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? You see, the person, the believer, knows that, you know, eating uh, uh, a steak that's been devoted to a, you know, a pagan god, it's not going to hurt me. The, the steak isn't altered. It's delicious. <laughs> but you have somebody else comes along, and he sees me eating the steak that was devoted to a pagan deity, and he doesn't understand my freedom in Christ. And so what happens? Well, he's like, I guess it's okay to eat steaks to foreign gods. Verse 11, so the weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. That's devotion. That's commitment to love of God. That if my liberty is causing my poor brother to falter, I stop with my liberty. I gauge my liberty on blessing people around me. Does that make sense? That's the uh, constraint of the love of God. You know, we live in a society that's all about my rights. Well, that's not the Christian walk. We got to understand that, you know, we kind of gave up the whole my rights thing when Jesus Christ died for us, right? My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. So I'm supposed to live for him. We each have, from the knowledge of grace, certain liberties in our walks that God is just fine with. He's fine with it. However, others with different backgrounds might find these things objectionable. So while my action isn't a sin against God, it's a violation of their conscience for them to follow in turn. Do you see that? God wants to protect the conscience, even a immature, uninformed conscience. Because if you break that conscience, it has lasting effects. Look at Romans 14. Romans 14. Look at verse 1. It says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, when we say this, this isn't just somebody saying, well, you know, I'm a vegan, you know, and another person says, well, you know, I like meat. These are kind of religious observances, okay? It would be like saying if you had an Orthodox Jew come over to your house who only ate kosher, okay? That's, that's the idea behind this. This isn't just eating preferences. So verse 3, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? That's a good question. To his own master, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look in verse 10. You then 
why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. We all have to give an account. I love that. I love that. There's a lot of situations where you can you can stand up and get all righteous and pass judgment on people. But a lot of times the situation comes down to, look, that person has his walk before God. That's between him and his master. Who am I to judge another man's servant? Meaning condemn another. I can certainly say that's wrong, but I don't have to go wagging my finger in people's face all the time. Look in verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up, your, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Is that clear? Is that clear? That I would constrain my liberties so that I am not offending somebody else's conscience. Now, let me make this statement. The idea here is that I'm helping my brother rise up and to understand that he has liberties too in Christ. This is to a person who's uninformed. This isn't to be understood that I'm running around curbing my liberties to make everybody happy. That's not what we're doing here. This is a brother in Christ who is young and immature. Verse 16, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but what is it? It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These ought to be the drivers for us. Is this going to bring righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Verse 18, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. There's that God and man thing. Our consciences are to be attuned to righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Mutual edification. Our concern is not just for ourselves. Our concern is for one another. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I think that's beautiful. That's where the conscience is, between yourself and God. Blessed is a man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he's, his eating is not done from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Do you see how important the conscience is? It's a requirement for your faith. <laughs> Doing the right thing. God calls on us to live by our conscience and the word of God that calibrates it, right? We're supposed to be living according to this conscience. If I see my brother do something, I don't know why he's doing it. He seems to be, you know, you know free to do it. But I start doing it, but in my, my conscience, I'm doing something wrong. What am I doing? I'm violating my conscience. That's why it's so important for us to help one another to maintain our conscience. If a person is doing something he doesn't know why, he needs to stop, and we need to teach him. Why do we have liberty in Christ? Because we're not under the law. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you violate your conscience, you are sinning against yourself, against your conscience. You know, I've heard people for years try to shoehorn meaning into this verse that doesn't exist. It needs to be understood in its context, okay? It means doing what's right according to your conscience. The conscience must be rigorously obeyed. Does that make sense, everybody? Rigorously obeyed. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. I like the term rigor. You know, we use rigor in math. Something that is worked out thoroughly in math is called a rigorously arrived at conclusion. Same with logic, that you don't have a lot of loose ends. That is rigorous. Okay, in verse Peter, first Peter chapter two, 
And look at verse 11. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. That's a really profound statement, that you stay away from things because they war against the soul. God isn't up there just telling us, don't do this, don't do that, because he likes to see us not have a good time. (laughs) He understands that when I do these things, they war against my soul. And I think about Martin Luther standing up in the Diet of Worms. And you're saying, what's the Diet of Worms? Well, the Diet of Worms was a meeting, and they had called Martin Luther before this meeting for him to recant all his works. He had written a whole bunch of works, and he said, well, which works do you want me to write or or to recant? I mean, some of these works are church doctrine. Do you want me to recant them? Do you want me to recant these? And and uh, uh, the uh, the person, whatever, the moderator stood up and said, you must recant. And so finally, Martin Luther says, I cannot and I will not recant anything. And then he said, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. And that should be our attitude in every venue, every venue that I cannot and I will not recant because to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Violating your conscience results in duplicity, hypocrisy, and a false character. A false character. Do you want to have a false character? Do you want to be the person who says things but really doesn't believe them? I don't want to be that person. Well, that's what you'll get if you violate your conscience. Samuel Butler said, The conscience is well-bred and soon leaves off talking to those who do not wish to hear it. How about that? When a person violates his or her conscience, a divide is created between what the person says and what the person intends or means. And this renders the person what the Bible calls double-souled. Double-souled. We call it hypocrisy. A person who says and does things for effect. That's not us. That shouldn't be us. We're supposed to be plain spoken, aren't we? That's what the Bible says. What you see is what you get should be uh, your your conversation with a believer, a Christian. There shouldn't be hidden agendas. Paul talks about people who do have these hidden agendas as people who glory in appearance and not in heart. And when a person violates their conscience on a regular basis, they forfeit their own peace. Thomas Watson said, no flattery can heal a bad conscience. And no slander can hurt a good one. How about that? I love it. Howard Aiken said, fear is the tax that conscience pays to guilt. You know, we talk about getting rid of fear from our lives, and we always work at that from the wrong end. We should be teaching people, look, you have a clean conscience. You're not going to have fear. When you violate your conscience, that's how you open yourself to fear. There is a hypocrisy that that yields in spiritual blindness. As I mentioned last week in my teaching on wisdom, wholeness and singleness of soul are required for deeper spiritual understanding. They're required. You can't be double-souled and think that you're going to have any deep spiritual insight. It just won't work. And this is why Satan works overtime to wound the conscience of the believer. Because if he can wound that conscience... He can render that person spiritually blind and that person's teachings fallacious. And each time a person violates his or her conscience, it's easier to do the next time. So the phenomena exists where leaders are blind but fail to know it. Jesus used to call these men blind guides, blind guides. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy, uh, leadership epistle. Timothy and Titus are leadership epistles. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 3. It says, As I urged you when I, was, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Now, I think that's awesome, right? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. That's really very amazing, very insightful. So when a person adheres to a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, he's he becomes a receptacle for truth. When he hears truth, it stays around for a while. <laughs> and then he can actually communicate it to people. But when a person violates their conscience, what happens? Well, their teaching, it goes to weed. They become purveyors of meaningless talk. They're using all the right verses, but they're not drawing any of the, any of the right conclusions, not spiritually. God isn't working in them to reach out and touch the hearts of the people that need touching. Does that make sense, everybody? Go to 1 Timothy 1.18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Holding on to them. Some have rejected these. And what happened? They shipwrecked their own faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. That's the result. I mean, I've seen ministers who have had great ministries, but what happened? They started violating their conscience, and it resulted in them shipwrecking their own ministry. You see, in order for us to war that good warfare that we have been called to war, we must hold on to faith and a good conscience. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. And in verse 2, it says, Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the church of God's church? That's a good question. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with uh, outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Wow. The deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. I was thinking about this. You know, I think about this in relation to the sacred secret. Those are the deep truths of our faith, aren't they? Right? That you have one body made up of many members, and all those members are required to work together. So a good minister is somebody who recognizes not just his own ministry, but the ministry of others and the inner working and interdependencies of those different functions in the body of Christ. I have seen far too many ministers who profess to understand the family faith and the sacred secret that we are all one body, but members in particular, but in practical ministry, they can't get beyond themselves. A minister of a defiled conscience will twist the gospel, the message of the mystery, into a political or cultural message. We're seeing that now in a lot of churches that are allowing these false doctrines to creep into the church, these social justice doctrines and these identity and grievance politics. They're allowing those into the church, and they've missed it. Why? Because they don't understand that these doctrines are fundamentally in conflict with the one body. It's just amazing to me. Shallow thinking ministers who have no depth. Why don't they have depth? Because they don't know the word and their consciences have been defiled. First Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy 4 and in verse 1. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Wow. Can you imagine that? I mean, you think about in medical science, 
You know, a way that you would stop bleeding, for instance, in a situation is by cauterizing a wound, cauterizing a wound. But it's basically stopping one wound by causing another. And then you have this this scar tissue that builds. But you think about scar tissue that we have around our hearts and our consciences and what happens. It makes it desensitizes us. We want to have tender consciences so that we can distinguish the nuances between right and wrong sometimes. Sometimes they're nuances. These people in verse three, it says they forbid people to marry in order that they abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. They're making bad judgments, bad doctrinal judgments, and they're laying those judgments on their people. Look at Titus chapter one, Titus one. Look in verse 13, 113. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Well, that doesn't sound too loving. When you're dealing with this kind of mentality, it is the best thing that you could do. And pay, and uh, they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Now, pay attention to this. This is important. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted... And do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, what does this mean? It means to the pure, all things are pure. If I'm walking along with a pure conscience, a pure outlook, I'm seeing things purely. I'm seeing them as they really are. But if I have allowed myself to have a corrupted conscience, what does that alter? It alters my ability to render godly judgments, to see things that are right. Does that make sense to everybody? It pollutes my vision. I want to have a clear outlook. But if I allow my conscience to be defiled, it's going to corrupt my ability to see things correctly. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. So what do we do? Say I have a defiled conscience. Is that, is that the end of the story for me? I mean, how do you fix your conscience? Well, that's a good question for the natural man. Once he's violated his conscience, he's been corrupted. What's left? But that's one of the beauties of the Christian, that there is redemption, that Jesus saves to the uttermost, that a person can have a corrupted conscience where he has violated his conscience and he's living a life as a result, he can have his conscience repaired in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. You see, the conscience of a Christian must be centered on the perfect work of Christ. The perfect work of Christ. Anybody who knows anything about the sinful nature of man will understand that when you live a life of any duration, it's going to batter and bruise your conscience. <laughs> when I came to, to Christianity at the tender age of 24, my conscience was in tatters. It was a mess, but that was one of the great works of the Spirit was repairing my broken conscience. Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 6, it says, When everything has been arranged like this, a priest enter regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. What are we talking about? Well, it's talking about the daily routines, the duties of the minister, right? In the Old Testament, the priests who had to attend to the temple. But only the high priest entered to the inner room, the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins of the people and the sins that people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illusion, or I'm sorry, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating, now listen to this, that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. The Old Testament law, the duties that were performed every day, the sacrifices, the atoning sacrifices were not able to repair the conscience of the sinner. The conscience year after year bore the burden of sin. 
You know, I think of Paul when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this dead body? Well, the law surely could not. It could atone for it, but it had to do it every year. Go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. It says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place one time, once, for all, for all by his blood, having obtained et- eternal redemption. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctified them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that led to death so that we may serve the living God? Isn't that just tremendous? that our consciences can be cleansed. This is true freedom. This is what freedom is all about. We live in a culture that screams about freedom, freedom, freedom. How about freedom from the burdens of sinfulness? We have been delivered in Christ. Remember what Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You shall find rest unto your souls. I can't think of anything that is more restful than a clear conscience a repaired conscience. Go to chapter 10, Hebrews, and look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for those who promised or for he who promised is faithful. And in closing, I just wanted to read something from Luther. Um, Last week I read from his, uh, his paper on uh, the book of Galatians, which is just amazing. I, I would encourage anybody who wants to read something just incredible to read Martin Luther's paper on Galatians. But he says, let us equip ourselves against the accusations of Satan with this and similar passage of Holy Scripture. If he says, thou shalt be damned, you tell him, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins in accusing me of being a damnable sinner, you are cutting your own throat, Satan. You are reminding me of God's fatherly goodness towards me, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In calling me a sinner, Satan, you really comfort me above measure. With such heavenly cunning, we are to meet the devil's craft and to put from us this memory of sin. Isn't that awesome? So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. And we thank you, Father, for having clear consciences. Father, in those areas of our lives that we are burdened with heavy conscience, that we look back on our past and we blush because of the, the things we've done. We're mortified. Father, I thank you for the new beginning of Christ the fact that Jesus died for our sins. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for being able to carry forth in ministry with a pure conscience. That, Father, that we're not wounded and we're not forfeiting our good um, judgment because of a wounded conscience. That, Father, all our thoughts and decisions can be made in light of Christ and in light of your word. I thank you, Father, when we do falter and fail, And Father, you pick us up, you repair our conscience. And Father, you make us that holy church that you've called us to. So we thank you for this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
honest I won't try to promise That someday it all works out Cause this is the valley And even now he is breathing on your dry bones And there will be dancing There will be beauty Where beauty was ash and stone This much I Cause you're 